0: To you open your Bibles with me to our um, core passage for the next um, for the next few weeks? I have to tell you, um, I'm a little anxious about that. Uh, I think, wow, I, I'm going to be talking about one passage of Scripture with you for for six weeks, and I, I'm fearful that I'll run out of things to say. But uh, yeah, that's I know, it's a ridiculous thought because God's Word never runs out of things to say, right? And you know me. That's probably what you meant. <laughs> you never seem to run out of things to say, Pastor Dave. But um, several times in our journey together, we've stopped and we've taken about six or seven weeks and we've just immersed ourselves in one story. You remember when we looked together at, at Luke 15 and and the story of the prodigal God, and we just immersed ourselves in that story. Do you remember um, Dave Serling referenced it earlier when we immersed ourselves in Romans 12? Another time when we immersed ourselves in Romans 8. I'm trusting and believing that as you immerse yourself in this amazing story that God will bless you and speak to you. You see where it is in your pew Bible if you have that. Um, if you have your personal Bible or your phones, I just invite you to turn there and whatever tool helps you to capture the heart of God, um, open that and let's go to God's Word together. Just in the way of context, um, Um, We're jumping right into the middle of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had had realized that well, his strategy from the very beginning was not to speak to the 20,000, was not to speak to the large crowds, but to speak... To small gatherings of people where there was fellowship, where people could know each other, where they could call forth from each other the very best that was in each one. And, and we know that he, he poured his life into twelve. Earlier in this chapter, he did the same thing with a missional community, with a group of people who were all committed to the same thing. And, and, and he sent out those 72 and then received them back and, and amazing statements about how when they risked Believing what what Jesus had said, when they risked going and impacting the world around them, well Jesus put it this way, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. I mean uh, amazing things happened because they risked stepping out because they risked believing what jesus said and so so um, I take you just a little bit further when um, when uh, uh, a lawyer in the culture there who had been observing him who 'd been watching jesus a, a guy i 'm going to believe his life had been touched by Jesus, but his worldview now was called into question. Uh, he was very religious man uh, uber religious man and 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 now he 's learning that there 's something more than religion there is a relationship with the living God that this nobody from galilee was was speaking of and and his his worlds are colliding and he's trying to make sense of that and we pick up the story in in Luke chapter 10 around verse 25 and looky there Luke says behold a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying rabbi or teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him the lawyer what is written in the law? How do you read it? Holy, apart from everything else, Jesus was a master communicator, was he not? And, and where I would have been tempted to give three-point outline, um, Jesus instead threw the question back to him. And in doing so, he opened that man's heart. How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, and I, 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 I wasn't there, but I, I could almost hear some pride in his voice as he quotes Deuteronomy 6.4, as he quotes the thing that's written on the doorpost of every Jewish house to this day, in a little scroll on the front door of their house is written these words, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He quoted the Shema. And then, Maybe because, as we've seen in Luke 18, Matthew 22, Mark records it as well. Maybe because several times Jesus had had the same teaching. There was not mass communication. There was not newspapers. There was not internet. There was not Facebook. If you did not hear Jesus say it, then you were getting a second or third hand from somebody else. But maybe because he'd heard Jesus do it before, he brought up, Leviticus, 19.18 as well. And the second is like it. and Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus looked at him. Watch these words carefully, beloved, because um, God ordains every single one of these words. Jesus spoke every single one of these words. Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this. Do you hear it? Don't say this. Don't think this. Don't even know this. But do this and you will live. Did you hear that? That means you're not living now. Ooh, wow. I don't think that that was lost on this man. I don't think that that was lost. Because look at the next line. But he, the lawyer... Desiring to justify himself, I understand what this man was going through. Sometimes people challenge me and I immediately go, you know, I've got to defend myself. I've got to I've got to clarify this. I've got to prove to you my righteousness. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And, and you have to believe that he had every expectation that Jesus would affirm what he already believed. He was so proud of himself. Mm, I'm, I'm reading into it, but forgive me. I believe he was so proud of himself for integrating the Shema and Leviticus that, that just as important as loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And maybe the evidence of that is that you love your neighbor and yourself. But Jesus had called into question his salvation. Jesus had called into question his his um, life and, and seeking to justify himself, then he throws back the question, who is my neighbor? Now, every good Jewish boy, and he was a good Jewish boy, would know the answer to that. And so, as we saw at the very beginning of this passage, in a way, he was testing Jesus. Are you Orthodox Jesus? Are you right in your thinking? He said, who is my neighbor? The answer that he expected him to say was... People who are like you. Your good Jewish friends. Um, you know, love them. And and by the way, Deuteronomy 6 goes on and says this. You know, that. So it's not like the, the man was misguided or broken. But Jesus is continuing to fulfill the scripture. He's continuing to expand it. And, and, and. And, and when the man says, Who is my neighbor? expecting Jesus to tell him, Your other Jewish friends, tell people all of that, your other, all of that brothers and sisters, right? He told them a story, a kin, a master teacher. Social, uh, social uh, what am I trying to say? Sociology experts would say that people um, receive about 10% of what you teach them, but they, but they retain about 80% of what they actually do. Jesus tells a story. He invites him. Remember last week, he invites him into the story and and he tells this famous story. I hope that the familiarity with it does not shut you down. Stay engaged with me, beloved. He said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That down is important. Not a word is wasted. If you go from Jerusalem about 20 some uh, hundred feet uh, you actually go 3,000 feet down to Jericho, which is actually way below sea level. And so he's going down this lonely road. Some of you have been on that road. It's a highway now, but it's still lonely. There's nothing out there except these hills that you weave between. And surprise, surprise, on that lonely road he was overtaken by robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead now this is a story that jesus is saying but it's a story based on exactly what had probably happened over and over again they could relate to it because they all knew somebody who had been molested on that road somebody who had encountered that same situation and 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 so Jesus touches a a, a vulnerable point. It's like me mentioning the word Charlottesville today. That's a vulnerable point for us right now. We're all going, I feel strongly about this, right? Um, and, And Jesus touches that vulnerable point for them. Now, by chance, he says, a priest was going, there's that word again, down that road. In other words, he's leaving his service. In Jerusalem and returning probably to his home in Jericho. And, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. You all exegeted this passage before, you know that that priest, if he touched that man, he became unclean. Particularly if that man had died as lying there by the side of the road, he was left for dead. And the priest, if he touched him, he was obeying the law, you guys. If he touched him, he would become unclean. He wouldn't be able to minister to his uh, his family, to the community. Back in, in Jericho, he crosses over. Jesus isn't necessarily condemning this man, right? He says uh, one of the priest's assistants, a Levite, a people especially set apart for ministry, came along, came down the road, did the same thing saw him pass by on the other side. Now, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, right? You have all gone to an off-ramp, right? And you have seen somebody holding a sign, right? I'm not doing the guilt thing here. I'm just owning the fact that we all know exactly what these guys did. Because we have all done that, right? And we had all kinds of rationales in our mind. It wasn't because I'll become unclean necessarily, but, but probably that person will go out and by chewing tobacco with it or something, right? And, uh, and we, would, we made our judgments that somehow made us feel better about ourselves or at least able to get through the light. And honestly, once we got through the light, we were home free. Am I making this up? Am I the only one that... that yeah, we know exactly what we're... Right. So so this is not a story about producing guilt in that. That's not the point at all. But he does touch us exactly where we live, Right. Exactly where we live. But a Samaritan. You all understand. I hope you understand that Jews hated Samaritans. Um, Fill in the blank. For some of you, it would be, um, you would say, a Muslim. For some of you, you would say a a neo-Nazi. For some of you, you would fill in that blank. Fill that blank in The, the... the, what you feel when you say that word is what they felt when they heard the word Samaritan. That's the miracle of this story, right? Not a priest, not a Levite, not an elder, not a deacon, not a pastor, none of the people that you'd expect to care for this person, cared for this person, but there's that, that, that pivot word, but a Samaritan who shouldn't have even been there. This is not Samaria. A Samaritan who shouldn't have even been there, who was a great risk to himself already to be there. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, don't let that word saw him pass you by. When he saw him, he had compassion. If you have not been with us, we've explored that word in depth. But we understand compassion means the ability to enter into someone else's suffering, co passion, co to suffer with. He, he entered into that person's suffering. And as we'll explore in the weeks to come, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. I don't remember how far that is. Some of you might, but I think it's in the, in the range of 18 to 20 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho. And, for, uh, and, and he set him on his own ride. He gave him his own car. He he sacrificed his own transportation and brought him to an inn and took care of him. That inn wasn't, there is one there now, but there wasn't then probably. There's no evidence of one on that road. He probably took him to the Jewish town of Jericho and stayed with him. Now picture your neo-Nazi, picture your Muslim, picture the person that causes you angst. When you, um, when you, uh, envision them, he stayed with him, put his life at risk, identified with the person. And, and Jesus asks this amazing question. Well, he, as we see in the scripture, the next day he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Uh, um, a familiar story with a radical, radical twist. The good guy is the bad guy, right? And the bad guy is the good guy. And Jesus asks this question, and this is the question that we're asking ourselves for the coming weeks. Who, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and the lawyer could not bring himself, could not, thank you for that insight, Pastor Bill, could not bring himself to say the Samaritan, <laughs> like some of you can't bring yourself to even verbalize the person who for you has stepped beyond the grace of God. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, same thing he said before, do likewise. And he added, go and do likewise, right? The very word of God. Thank you, you, God. Thank you, God. If you don't open this for us, if you don't expand our hearts and our minds to receive this, God, then it's just going to be another exercise in futility But God, if you will open our hearts and minds to it, you will not only change our lives, but you'll change the trajectory of our family system. You'll change the trajectory of this faith community. God, if you will open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, God, many will be blessed, including us. So I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen? Well, um, let me just enter into the story with you for a couple minutes. Um, One of the beauties of having six weeks is that I don't have to tell the whole story. I don't have to get every little point. I really want to focus you on, on a couple different thoughts here. There's two very, very important questions in here. Two very important questions. We're going to explore them today and then come back later. I say they're very important, but they're wrong questions. Um, and this is Dave now. Um, I think he asks the wrong questions. And and I'm looking at, at uh, Dave down here, Dave Herding, and, and um, several times I've had struggles with my um, HVAC, with my air conditioning and stuff like that. And... Tried to fix it on my own. And um, I'm laughing because he rescued me a few weeks ago. And and he came and he was so gracious. Because I had duct taped all this foam stuff. I had tried everything in my mind. This is the solution to this problem. And I had my mother-in-law's air conditioner all fixed. Except that it didn't work. Uh, But it looked good. It looked really good. (laughs) You know, duct tape is, is the badge of uh, competency in, in a man's realm, right? And, um, and, um, and it looked real good. My greatest failure um, in, on the backpack trip was that my duct tape was wrapped around my poles. <laughs> and my poles had these little, these little snow cups on them. And if you drop that little snow cup in the water, guess what happened to the little pole? With the duct tape, it was gone. Dave graciously came in and he didn't say anything, but he just just kind of pulled off the duct tape, kind of pulled off the acres of foam wrapping that I had tried to rescue the air conditioner with and in about eight minutes, solved the problem. Oh my goodness. If we ask the wrong questions, we're going to get the wrong answers. My question was, how do I get more foam around this tube? Um, The problem was, the right question would have been, how do I get more antifreeze into the cooler, right? Whatever the appropriate term is for that. I'm suggesting to you they asked two very important questions, but they were wrong. And so the answer was always going to be wrong. You would never get the need met by asking that wrong question. What's the first one, the first question that he asks here? I'm going to hang myself out here for a while, but risk it with me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? That sounds like such a good question. Just tell me what to do to inherit eternal life and, and I will do it, right? Or if he was indeed testing him, I'll I'll check your orthodoxy by the answer that you give. But listen to the question, right? What do you do to inherit something? You don't do anything, right? To inherit something, someone has to sacrifice themselves or die for you to to receive it and by its very nature it's not something you can control. And there's nothing more pitiful than watching someone try to control a future inheritance, right? It does not work. So the question right from the beginning is wrong. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. It's wrong for another reason. We don't, we don't slide into heaven on the faith of uh, our forefathers, right? Right? We, it, the door and the entrance to heaven is one person wide. It's critical. Please don't misunderstand me. It's critical the role you have in influencing other people. But that person has to come to the saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. It does not matter what your family history is. So the question is just fraught with trouble here. The question is really not what must I do to inherit eternal life. The question is really what he's really asking, I think, is how can I save myself? How can I save myself? Now, we've seen in other passages, particularly... Romans 3, the first three chapters of Romans, actually, and Luke 15, the story of the prodigal God. We've seen in those chapters that there's three common answers to this question. How do I save myself? Some by being yourself. But because we're broken people, when we just surrender ourselves to being ourselves, that ends up being bad. That ends up doing things that break the heart of God. And even though in the 19th century, many believed, and today many believe, that if you just let people be themselves, they will be good, right? The reality, we listened to a survivor from the Rwandan um, genocide uh, on Friday. We uh, The reality is that doesn't seem to be true. That if we leave ourselves to ourselves, then terrible things happen. We are broken. There are none righteous, right? No, not one. And so and so, if we're left to ourselves, then then the natural outpouring of that is something very bad. So some of us, our common answer is, well, be yourself. Another common answer is, be right. We try and prove to everyone around us that, that our version of reality is right and theirs is wrong. The miracle of the prodigal God, we learn too that some of us just try and and answer the question of how do we save ourselves by being good by being good remember the older brother right remember um, remember romans chapter 3 the legalist that says i can do this i can earn god's favor by doing by being good and 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 a, and a wonderful insight Tim Keller challenges us. Some of us need to repent of our badness and some of us need to repent of our goodness because neither of those things will save us. not advocating that you be bad because it doesn't matter being good. I'm saying your goodness is never going to be good enough. The standard is the glory of God, not your goodness or worse, hoping that God grades on a curve. As long as you're better than most other people, you'll be okay. Those are common answers. How do I save myself? But the reality is, is that you can't, right? You can't save yourself. But if instead you are humble enough or desperate enough, and we're not proud, and God's not proud, He will take either to ask the question and hear the difference, not how do I save myself, but how can I be saved? That's an entirely different question, right? then Jesus does have an answer for you. It's not yourself. It's not be bad. It's not be right. It's not even be good. Because only one person was good enough. I want to suggest to you that there are three better answers to that question. Believe on the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Put your weight down on what Jesus Christ has done. The only truly begotten Son of the Father lived the life that you couldn't live, uh, experienced the death that you deserve, gave Himself for you, so that if you would simply say, I receive... Not inherit, not work for. I receive this gift, Jesus, of your life for mine. Then you, how put it in John 3.16, all those who believe will be saved, right? Be saved. It's passive. You didn't do it yourself. You didn't save yourself. You were saved by the love of someone else. Three better answers. Be, leave, but also be filled. Be filled with the Spirit of God. You cannot do this yourself, but God can do it yourself. And if you're filled with the presence of God, then you begin to be transformed from the inside out and you begin to, to care about the things that God cares about and you begin to respond in the way that, that God responds. Your heart is broken with the things that break the very heart of God and your hands begin to move with a, the with a, with a impulse of His love. Be filled with the Spirit. God can do it through you. Believe and be filled and become like Jesus who fulfilled the Shema. Can I do a little side note for you for a second? When I, when I say Shema, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Deuteronomy 6, four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God. And then our English Bible is translated with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Luke wasn't wrong to add mind in there. That's a part of your soul. But the original Shema is translated that way. But there's probably a translation problem right there. Do you understand that any time... I I know this personally because I've been trying to speak Japanese to some Japanese friends. and, and, And when I try and speak Japanese, I just... I just mess it up. Anytime you translate something, you risk misunderstanding. And probably because of the Greek influence of the words we'll explore in the weeks to come from the New Testament, when they quote Deuteronomy 6, we translate the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But but the Hebrew words don't go there. We shared with you many months ago that the Hebrew words actually say something more akin to this. Love the Lord your God. With all that you are, with all that you say, and with all that you have. Can we stop for just a second and, and ask ourselves that question? It's a different question, right? Do I love God with all that I am? Do I love God with every word that comes out of my mouth? Do I love God with all these amazing resources? I'm not just talking about financial or physical Resources and all the relationships. Do so I love God with all that he has entrusted to me? Many of us are really vulnerable to self-condemnation. And right here, I want to say, I'm a dirtbag, right? Don't go there. Jesus Didn't go there. All this effort that you're seeing and will experience over the next six weeks, or all this effort that he experienced on this path because he loved the man. He wanted the man to come to life. Do this and you will live, right? Jesus is about life and life abundant. John 10 10. He wants you to experience life, not to wallow in self condemnation because you don't love God with all that you are because you don't love God with everything that you say. As I said that, I can think of like 15 things, stupid things that I've said. I've hurt people. That I don't love God with all that I have. Don't enter into self-condemnation. Instead, hear the invitation of Jesus to live like you have never lived before. Was it you, Kristen, that were quoting Dave Ramsey? Live like never before so that later you can live like never before. He started that thought and he, with the idea that live financially like never before. But the words are just as true spiritually. Um, if, live into this Shema. Live into this invitation uh, to love God with all that you are and all that you say and all that you have. I want to summarize this with the theme that we ended up with for this whole thing. It comes from the very last words that Jesus said here. Grow, beloved, grow a heart of mercy. Grow a heart of mercy. And I want to speak again right now, whatever, wherever you fall out on the events that are going on in our country right now. Mercy is the solution, not judgment, not condemnation, not feeling better about yourself because you of people believe this and 40% of people believe that. It doesn't matter what people think. What Jesus is saying matters is the one who is merciful in the midst of that. Mercy may be the invitation of God to the United States of America right here at this junction in our history. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the wrong question. It's really the question, how do I save myself? And Jesus says, you can't. You can't save yourself. Instead, be merciful to those around you. Grow a heart of mercy. Well, you know, the man was disturbed because because Jesus was taking him a place he didn't want to go. And so he came back with a self-justifying question. Who is my neighbor then? If I need to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? Again, he probably thought he knew the answer. And if Jesus just would affirm that he was right, he would be justified for himself and with all those in front of him and around him. He thought that his neighbor was someone like him, someone who strove to keep all 613 of the commandments. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus turns that question on its ear and changes that wrong question, who is my neighbor, to a different question. To the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus turns this lawyer's world upside down. And if we will allow, he will turn our worlds upside down as well. Together, we're going to explore over the coming weeks what the implications of that is. But right now, I just want you to see what Jesus was doing. He's changing the question. It's not, who is my neighbor? That's a good question. But it has a very simple answer, Right? That answers for us as believers in Jesus Christ is found in something, someone does, I think it was Dave, somebody referred to this morning in the congregational meeting. The great mandate from Acts 1.8, right? Um, be filled with the Spirit. and Witness in Jerusalem, the places closest to you. Uh, Judea, the places not as close but with people like you. That would be the Midwest for us. Samaria, which is whatever you filled the blank in with earlier, those places where people are not like you, where people don't think like you, they don't speak the same languages, they don't have the same cultural metaphors, go to those places, and finally to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we, we know who our neighbor is. It is it is everyone, and it's the person right next to us at the same time. No, Jesus doesn't answer that question. The question that Jesus answers is this question. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? Right? He asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, you're asking a question you already know the answer to. I'm going to change that question. The better question is, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? And we'll explore that for the next six weeks. Well, where does that leave us today, right? Let me start by dramatically oversimplifying the answer to these neighbor questions. Who is our neighbor? Help me. Everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. That was a radical thought for this person, that a Samaritan could be your neighbor. But everyone is your neighbor. But what does it mean to be a good Neighbor, I want to give you just some teaser thoughts to send you on your way. But to do that well, I'm going to have to ask you to turn, if you've been following your notes, turn that over. I'm going to have to borrow somebody's if I could. Thank you. Um, This tool, I was flabbergasted probably about three months ago. I was meeting with uh, the other pastors in our city. And they had come to a dramatic conclusion that was reaffirmed by our own mayor, that mayors all across the country, when they're wondering what is it that the church can do to bless the city that the church is in, they say, guess what? Be a good neighbor. Be a good neighbor. If everybody just cared for their neighbors, right? We don't need social services. We don't need all these things. Just be a good neighbor. And beginning in a suburb of Colorado, extending all the way to about three weeks ago, while I was gone, the local pastors met with Mayor Winnicky. He said the same thing. Totally unprompted. He said, you know, if the churches were just, well, hello, somebody a long time ago told us the same thing. Right? Told us the same thing. So, but I want to do a little fun experiment with you for a second, mostly because I want to justify myself. I failed miserably at this experiment and you're going to do better than I did. Think about where you live right now. That's you in the center, right? Think about the eight closest places around you. Now, some of you have tremendous advantages. I know some of your neighbors, you got great neighbors. Can you how many of their names do you know? Well, well, Dave. I know, they have the people with the white truck, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um No, I didn't ask what kind of truck they drove. What's their name? I'm so convicted while I'm saying this. I got like four pastors in my neighborhood. I got I'm surrounded by followers of Jesus. And the moment that I get outside the followers of Jesus, I start to struggle. Even though I've heard their names multiple times. Even though they have ministered to us. Our cat passed away while he was turns out we just found out yesterday. Sorry for the sidebar that it was attacked by two dogs and killed in a, in a terrible fight in the middle of the night that woke the whole neighborhood. And, um, and my neighbors knew that, and they cared about us to come seek us out and, and tell us. They called us to tell us that our cat had passed away. I was in California. My wife was out walking yesterday, and two neighbors spoke of what they knew to be true in, in the midst of that. And they know us. They care about us, and I can't remember their names. How are you doing? How you do, oh, you did really good. Are you, oh, oh, no. OK. <laughs> OK. Sorry. I won't call you out. <laughs> How'd you do? How if you haven't had a chance yet, can you give me an estimate? Names. Three. I got three out of eight too, Carol. And it's because I've lived there 20 years <laughs> and they have lived there three out of eight. Now, I know that you don't live in a neighborhood that looks just like that. It was kind of complicated for you. And for some of us, it might be more meaningful to do this with people in the cubicles around you at your office or something. I just want to give a real practical edge to this and say, doesn't it make sense if we're going to love our neighbors that we need to speak to them and and call them by name? Every week in the bulletin, this will be there. And so um, I'm going to invite you to do what I did in anticipation of this series. Went to two more of my neighbors and said, I am so sorry. Um, I can't remember your name. And they were very gracious because they know my name. Um, Possibly because I live right behind the church and they know that I'm the pastor. I don't know, but they knew my name, Um, including people that are my Samaritans. If you'll forgive me. They knew my name. They... um, I had to go and he see Humble Pie and two of them, I I just had to ask them. I know we've lived next to you for years, I can't, I don't know your name and then I got smart and I went on the website that tells the property owners, (laughs) because I knew I was going to stand before you (laughs) and I got some of their names. so that at least when I saw them, I could call them by name, and it, and it, to call somebody by name. Watch what happens. Their soul awakens. That's a huge step. To call somebody by their name's a huge step. I called them by name, and they responded, and their their spirits kind of lit up. And, and and then when I would see them in the neighborhood in the days following, they would call me by name. They would. It just made it that simple little truth. I'm going to challenge you to much more over the coming weeks. But that simple. little truth will make a huge difference. I want to invite you. Get to know your neighbors. And let me just challenge you here by saying, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? From this passage, open your eyes and your mind and your heart, your will, to God. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. That's the greatest gift that you can give someone is your love for God with all that you are and all that you say and all that you have. Right. But secondly, open your eyes and your mind and your heart. Come on up, worship team, to your neighbor. Start with those closest to you. Start with the people that sit around the dinner table with you. And if they don't sit around the dinner table with you, invite them to sit around the dinner table with you. Start with your family. But very quickly, go one house away. Very quickly, go one cubicle away. Go one study, Carol, away. Very quickly, open your eyes and your heart and your mind to those that God has already placed around you. And and week by week, begin to fill in this chart. I'm challenging you this week to just learn your neighbor's names. But I'll tell you where we're going. Then I want, I want to invite you to learn about their families. About the things that make their hearts tick, right? About the things that they're passionate about. In the days ahead, I'm going to invite you to fill out this list with who they are, not just their name. But start this week with their names. Last of all, get and stay connected with people, with people. You cannot do the work of Christ on your own. Um, You need to be connected with people. Find those people who ask you the hard questions, who make you want to love God more. Get connected with those who don't know Jesus yet. Invite them to to talk with you. It's just as simple as as standing in your front yard instead of your backyard, right? we spent generations now developing our backyards, but people meet on the front yards. Start spending time building, getting connected with the people that are around you. And if you can put those two things together, a faith community that, that loves you and challenges you to be more like Jesus and a missional community, a place where you love others with that love of God, gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail. God is going to take back people. He's going to take back family. He's going to take back students. He's going to take back communities. God, thank you for the wisdom that was always right here before us. Forgive us, When like the lawyer, we've tried to justify ourselves. Forgive us for the times when we have been more interested in looking good to you or especially to other people than actually becoming like you, God. Forgive us for the times when we have sought to justify ourselves rather than to lay ourselves down and humble ourselves. But God, I I marvel at what you could do with one faith community that took this simple story seriously and began to put it into practice. So may it be so, God. Prompt us by your Holy Spirit. Empower us. Grant those who today for the first time are coming to that place where they say, I want to serve a God like that. I want to serve a God who has compassion on the Samaritans of our world. I want to serve a God who loved us so much that he gave his only son for us. God, grant us the courage to tell someone, to risk entrusting our lives to you and to tell someone. And God, I just rejoice over the coming weeks as we'll get a chance. Yeah, we're blessed to be able to send missionaries all over the world. But God, we are the missionaries that you want to send into the places that you've already established, into the homes and the workplaces and the community that you have placed us. We offer ourselves to you